Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast on this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is titled, Yikes, Eight Ballot Questions. Yep, there will be eight questions for voters on the November 7th ballot. Some of them are citizen initiatives. Some of them are constitutional amendments. What's the difference? What do they mean? What will they do? Where do they come from? Who supports? Who supposes? whose money is being spent. We're going to try to cover all of that in the hour ahead. This show is pre-recorded on October 16th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. First, Will Hayward is the Advocacy Program Director for the League of Women Voters of Maine and our principal statehouse presence. Welcome, Lil. Thank you so much for having me, Ann. And Steve Missler. Steve is Maine's Maine Public's Chief Politics and Government Correspondent. He's been reporting in depth about these ballot questions for several weeks now and has done an excellent job of um, explaining to people what, what the questions are about. We're very pleased to have you here, Steve. Welcome. My pleasure. So let's get started. Will, um, putting it to you first, seems like a lot of questions. Is it unusual to have this many questions on the ballot in Maine? It is in in recent years it is certainly unusual I would say it is not it is not as far out of the range of what's possible as it might seem in 2014 for instance there were seven questions but six of those were bond questions um my perception is that particularly the amount of constitutional amendments is very, very unusual. We don't see even one constitutional amendment come forward most most years in Maine. So certainly that combination of a lot of constitutional amendments, a lot of ballot initiatives where, you know, the effort has gone in to collect the signatures, put it on the ballot, go through the process, that combination is creating a lot of perhaps more big questions than we're used to seeing on a ballot. What's your historical perspective on that, Steve? Yeah, I think that's right. I think what Will said is correct. I think 2016, there were five uh, referendum questions. Those are all citizen initiatives. And the difference here, though, is that we have four constitutional amendments and four citizen initiatives. So, you know, it's not unusual for Maine to attempt to um, amend its constitution, which four of these questions do. I think it's unusual for to see four that four attempts to do that all at once. And it actually it's it's a high bar uh, to actually get on the ballot because these constitutional amendments would not be here if not for the legislature, a supermajority of the legislature passing them and sending them to voters for final approval. And I think uh, the main constitution has been 175 attempts to amend the main constitution in its 200 plus years as a state. So not unusual. Uh, this many all at once, as well referenced, is uh, is what is uh, unique in this year. People always ask me about the wording of the questions, and sometimes when we have people's vetoes, the wording of the question can be a little, you know, double negative, confusing. Um, we don't have any of those this time, but who determines, I'll put this to you, Steve, who determines the wording of the question and the order in which they appear on the ballot? Yeah, so the wording of the question is really that the responsibility for wording the question falls to the Secretary of State, but there are chances 
for um, the campaigns or individual citizens to challenge that wording. And that's happened here uh, on question two, or excuse me, question three in particular, which is the uh, the takeover of the, of the uh, investor-owned utilities in this state. There was a lot of wrangling about what to call this entity that would replace it. And a lot of that, of course, is just because the messaging is so important in that campaign. Um, and what we call this new entity is important, especially to the uh, to the folks who want to see this takeover happen. But the you asked about the order of the questions that actually, they're literally pull these things out of a hat and which is why, you know, we have- You mean literally, they pull them out of a hat, like it's a drawing. That's right. Okay. That's right. It's a, it's a random drawing. It's just how we ended up with this particular order this year. I mean, it's a little odd to have, we'll get into it, but question one going separate from question three, since the two of them are sort of conceptually linked. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And I mean, the wrangling over the language was over the words consumer owned, wasn't it? What was that about? It was also over uh, quasi-governmental. Mm-hmm. That was the real bugaboo in this thing, because quasi-governmental, of course, from a political and messaging perspective, me, it would sort of, I think, from the Our Power, which is the advocates for question three, from their perspective, calling it quasi-governmental sort of helped the utilities make the argument that this is a government takeover by calling it a quasi-municipal entity, as the original question did. The 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 uh, advocates, the our power folks, the Pine Tree Power folks, were concerned. I think that calling it that would not only be confusing to a lot of people, which the law court agreed. Um, they also were worried that it would sort of play into the hands of the the, the opponents of this thing. So that was the real hang up in this thing, and they ultimately won that fight. Although the legislation describes this new entity as quasi municipal or a quasi municipality, which is essentially the same thing, which is uh-huh. why. It would have this, you know, access to low interest bonds, um, be considered a nonprofit, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just so, to, oh, please, well, go ahead. Oh, just to drop a quick anecdote, anecdote in on here, the question one does still contain the phrase quasi governmental, which I find interesting. And I was at a mm-hmm. event where we were um, explaining the ballot questions a little to folks who were helping to translate and interpret for people in their community. And I got the question, quasi, what does quasi governmental mean? And I had to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I find this one very hard to define, certainly hearing it out out in the community already. I mean, I've been debating about whether to take the questions in order, like start with one and go through eight. But since we kind of jumped in on question three, and since that's the one that's getting, I would say, the most publicity, maybe we'll start with that one and then go back to question one. Where did this come from? Who's supporting it? Are there active campaigns? I mean, let's just start with, like, what is it? What would it do, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Um, So what it would do is effectively... It would authorize the takeover, the seizing of the assets of the the, two, the state's two largest investor-owned utilities, that's Central Main Power and Versant Power. It would essentially authorize a takeover of those assets and they then would hand those over to this new entity, um, which is often referred to as Pine Tree Power. It wouldn't go by that name necessarily if this thing came to be. That's more of a political messaging sort of, sort of uh, technique. And then, and then it would uh, at that point the this new governance structure, which is really consequential in so many ways, I think is really in, important to talk about. It would replace this executive run, um, these executive run businesses with a nonprofit and an elected board 
uh, 13-member board, seven of those members would be elected, and then the other six would be effectively handpicked by the elected members as expert energy consultants um, to basically guide these folks through uh, managing this new utility. Then the other piece would be that the new um, governance, the new uh, entity, the consumer-owned utility, would actually have to hire an outside operator, a for-profit firm, to run the, the grid to you know to make sure that the trucks run out when you know when the power goes out if the lines are maintained all the things that Versant and CMP currently do that stuff would all be outsourced in other words it Sorry. would be yeah it's yeah. really the management it's the management and decision making that's that's the big change here though there's a lot of questions about what you know who would manage it what kind of companies would be in the business of doing this especially for a nonprofit you know a quasi municipal nonprofit where did this come from? Like, what was the impetus for bringing the petition forward and circulating the petition in the first place? Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it was born in the legislature for sure. And I think it's multifaceted uh, where it came from. I think there was a popular movement, especially in 2019, 2020, 2021, where there's a lot of disenchantment with Maine's two largest utilities, in particular, Central Maine Power, I think. I think Versant kind of gets roped into this to their <laughs> chagrin. But I think Central Maine Power, in particular, had a lot of problems with billing issues, overbilling, outages, uh, the long, the duration of the outages, all of these things. I mean, Maine, for a while, there was like the worst in the country in terms of the number of and the duration of power outages. And I think there was a confluence of all those things Plus, in the legislature, there was some irritation with Central Maine Power's influence here in this building, and also when, especially when it came to solar power and net energy billing. And I think there was when Central Maine Power helped kill uh, an energy billing bill back in, I think it was 2016 or 17, if I recall correctly. Um, that really um, spurred this movement within the legislature. It was a small movement to begin with. But I think those other problems that we talked, I discussed a moment ago, kind of came together to form a, a little bit of a critical mass. Um, the question is, is whether that movement is as strong now as it was then. Uh, that's a that's a more of a political question, but that's where it came from. And it hasn't been partisan, has it, Will? I would I would say that when you look at how you know the proposal through the legislature came up, there, it's certainly. There has been more of one party in terms of legislators than the other. You know, there have been many more Democrats, though not exclusively Democrats. And of course, there are legislators of both parties who oppose it. Um, I know that also if you look at the public polling, which has been been released, you know, there certainly are people of both parties, um, you know, supporting and opposing. I think it's fair to say that more Democrats than Republicans so far have appeared to, to support it. But, um, you know, that's far from a universal brush. Talk a little bit about the role of the PUC here. Explain what they do now, and are they doing a good, a good job? And that's a great question. So the Public Utilities Commission, which is an, is basically the regulator for the utility utilities, and there's two sc schools of thought here, as a, especially as it relates to Central Maine Power. And there's a, there's a school of thought that if you really want to change utilities behavior or customer service and that sort of thing, you really ought to take issue you ought to take your issue to the public utilities commission or the public advocate um or the legislature and make changes to the regulatory structure that way um that's certainly what people who maybe were on the fence about our power pine tree power 
Um, that's what they always say, or they're or they're skeptical of this takeover. They tend to say, like, why don't we just focus our efforts on the on the PUC and and you know giving them more teeth to regulate these utilities. There was an attempt to do that last year in the previous legislature, and it passed. It was the governor's bill. It was a utility accountability bill, which was born out of this disenchantment that I referenced earlier. But there are just some people who just think that that does not go far enough. And that they that what was really needed is to kick these guys out and to replace it with this new quasi governmental entity, and you know that some people are skeptical of that. But the Public Utilities Commission would still play a role in, in regulating this new entity if it were to come to pass. So it would still have to abide by generally almost the same exact rules as the t- two investor owned utilities, and that also means critically, I think, is that they can't own power generation. So there's a lot of um, discussion around this particular initiative that it would be helpful to climate change initiatives and and uh, we kind of get the investor-owned utilities out of the way and because sometimes they've been resistant to some of these changes, whether it's hookups to solar power or wind, that sort of thing. Central Maine Power has been criticized. There was almost an investigation of Central Maine Power over these issues. The problem is, I think, is that this new utility, if it were to come to pass, would not be able to own generation assets. So it's not as if windmills and solar panels are going to be going up all over the state and we're going to be 100% renewable. It's, you know, they still would have, they would not be able to own those assets. They would still have to do exactly what the two investor-owned utilities are doing right now. But the issue has been whether the investor-owned utilities are dragging their feet on connecting those green energy sources, right? That That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, that's when I referenced the investigation. It was specifically over solar power hookups. And the governor actually had called for an investigation over um, over in, in CMP in particular, because there was a lot of, um, there was, the perception was is that there was foot dragging and that the, the hookups were actually um, more expensive than they ought to be. So that was another issue. And, um, you know, I think the Pine Tree Power folks would argue that the investor-owned utilities are never going to embrace uh, renewable energy power unless they benefit from it or profit from it. And what they're trying to say is that, look, you know, climate change and renewable energy and that sort of thing in that ethos is literally embedded in this legislation. And so, therefore, you know, it's it's part of our mandate if it passes to facilitate facilitate these type of things. So, that's the argument that they're making. I'm going to ask just one more question on question three, and then we'll take a little station break and move on to the other questions. But, well, so the PUC is still in here, right? And do, do you know how the members of the PUC are appointed and also the role of the public advocate and how the public advocate is appointed? I will defer to Steve on this one okay. very happily. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah, Steve. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good question. It's important, too, because the governor appoints members of the, the Public Utilities Commission. They are confirmed by the main state Senate. So there is a bit of a check there on the governor's power. But the criticism of the PUC over the years has been that at times that those those are those these these appointments are representative of the incumbent power, right? In in this case, the investor-owned utilities. So there's some skepticism that the PUC will actually do the regulatory work that it needs to. On these utilities, they they vehemently disagree with that. They they believe and argue that they are a good check on the utilities and that they have performed their duties as prescribed in law. And that they're excuse me, if there wants to be their legislature wants other changes, they should make those. 
And then the PUC would execute those changes. And the public advocate doesn't work for the PUC. The public advocate is appointed separately by the governor, right? That's correct. And the, okay. and the public advocate, it works on behalf of ratepayers. Okay. That's their that's their charge. They represent the public advocate represents ratepayer interests. Okay, good. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our program today is titled Yikes, Eight Ballot Questions. Our guests this afternoon are Steve Missler, Maine Public's Chief Politics and Government Correspondents correspondent, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Director for the League of Women Voters of Maine. This program was pre-recorded on October 16th. No listener calls are being taken now. I think now we'll move on to question one. Will, do you want to just, what do you know about the history of question one? Steve has done such a, I don't know, <laughs> full job of describing <laughs> so I would be more than happy to toss this one too. All right. Go ahead, Steve, then Will can comment after. Sure. So question one was actually put on the ballot by the utilities, uh, Central Maine Power's political arm in particular. And what it acts, what it asks voters to do is basically is to approve any borrowing over one billion dollar dollars. It, it doesn't mention question three in particular, but it's it is specific to question three. So what it's basically a stopgap measure. And so if question three were to pass. And question one passes this year. What this would do is would give voters another opportunity to vote on any borrowing that would be needed for the acquisition that's in question three. So the takeover itself, the seizing of the assets and what how much that costs, which is very much in dispute. Once that price tag has been negotiated or more and more likely um, litigated in court, once that is settled, Question one would come into play if it passes, and it would ask voters to approve the borrowing of this takeover. So it, for the from the utilities perspective, it's another chance to, to defeat this thing, right? Um, from a voter's perspective, it might they might feel more comfortable with it there, right? So if they're on the fence about question three and they're intrigued by the prospect of it, but they're not so sure about the price tag, which again, there's widely varying and disparate claims here. If they're not so sure about the price tag, they may want to vote for question one. And if they vote for question one and it passes and question three passes, it would give them a second chance to approve the borrowing for this thing. Now, well, we didn't talk much about active campaigns on question three, but when we talk about question one, we can sort of talk about the same thing. Like there's been a lot of money spend on question three and active campaigns on both sides. You can just recap that a little bit, but are there active campaigns on question one? If you look at the um, money that has been spent, filed with the um, Ethics Commission as of the spending as of the beginning of this month, um, there is only an active campaign, only a significant spending in support of question one. There's something that's listed as our power in support of question one on there, but I suspect that that is misfiled. Um, no, no, perhaps. they testified in favor of it in the legislature. Oh, question one. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, so it's very minimal spending, but I, I suppose, you know, it's it's interesting. And if you look at the polling again, like question one looks like it's probably on track to pass by a lot. So there may be some some calculus going on there. But the question one spending has been far, far outstripped by the question three spending, and in particular, the spending in opposition to question three. Um, there has been some spending in support. You know, there's a sort of grassroots campaign out there, but the 
spending in opposition to question three has been just by great orders of magnitude, the biggest campaign in terms of spending, advertising, all of that so far this election season. I mean, I'm hearing a little pushback from voters on that. Like it's almost too much. Are you hearing that, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a, certainly from the, the the supporters of question three, um, their perspective is that this is this David Goliath, David and Goliath um, battle, right? I, I've heard that a lot from listeners, and and they have a, a point, right? So our power, which is the campaign committee advancing question three, and and they off it's often referred to as pine tree power. They've barely brought in a million dollars, and they've spent almost all of that. By contrast, the utilities have spent $32 million and they have a lot more money sitting in cash reserve as we speak. Um, and all of that money has come from the, their parent companies, uh, Avon Grid for C- C- Central Main Power and NMAX for Versant Power. All the, you know, basically these campaign committees are tapping the parent company's treasuries and they have vast sums of mon- money and a very sophisticated campaign i would argue it's not just about ads in this one this there's a lot there's a very um interesting and opaque influencing network that's you know that the utilities are using to make sure that this thing does not pass to your central question are people irritated with that they're always irritated with ads they can't (laughs) they can't stand them you know what i mean so and i think i do think that the utilities and their respective campaign committees have to be cognizant of that because if they do look like the big bully that's beating up this other thing that's, you know, uh, got a bit of a populist appeal, you know, maybe that backfires and maybe not. I don't know. I think for voters, they have to weigh the uncertainty and risk with question three versus, you know, maybe they're disgust with the, how much money the opponents of it are spending. Okay. I think, yeah, I ahead. think it's also just worth noting the legacy of the 2021 ballot question still lingers for a lot of people. And that's saw. Tell That's people all, what that was. They won't remember. So, so this was about the uh, Clean Energy Corridor in Western Maine. Um, and this one, this was essentially a, you know, a citizen referendum attempting to stop that corridor um, from happening. And that one actually saw twice as much, at least in terms of total spending. And that was largely a factor of large energy companies spending on both sides of that question. So you didn't have this one-sided campaign, but I think that adds to the voter fatigue because it's in the same general suite of issues that they're getting all of these mailings, calls, et cetera, and during election season over the last several years. Well, that's a great lead into question two, which for listeners, it reads, do you want to ban foreign governments and entities that they own, control, or influence from making campaign contributions or financing communications for or against candidates or ballot questions? And this, I think, didn't this kind of have its ignition in the campaign that Will just talked about, the clean energy corridor thing, Steve? Yeah, it's to- totally born out of that. So the the little bit of history is back when question, I guess it was the 2021 referendum, and you have to go back like a one year because it was one attempt to get that on the ballot that failed. So the the camp the electioneering for it began almost two years in advance of the referendum that ultimately passed. In that corridor referendum, Hydro-Quebec, which is which was the electricity supplier for the corridor that Will mentioned, the transmission project, Hydro-Quebec spent tens of millions of dollars in an attempt to defeat that question, which wanted to scuttle the corridor, uh, basically just get rid of it. And I think 
Hydro-Quebec's entry into the electioneering of this thing raised a lot of questions, at least for me. I mean, I remember my first question as soon as I saw that they created a ballot question committee was, can they do this? And the reason I had that question is that Hydro-Quebec is wholly owned by the government of Quebec. It's effectively an arm of the government. And so my question to the Ethics Commission was, how can a foreign government electioneer in a state referendum? And they didn't really have a great answer. They said, well, there's a loophole in Maine law. There's no, you can't contribute, a foreign national or foreign corporation can't contribute to statewide candidates, federal candidates. This is all in law, but federal and state law are completely silent on the electioneering by corporations that are owned by foreign governments or foreign governments themselves, even from electioneering and statewide referendums. So question two closes that loophole. And it's it's was specifically aimed at Hydro-Quebec at the time. But now, actually, if it were in effect, if it were in effect right now, this spending we're seeing on question three, half of that would be gone. That would Because NMAX would not be allowed to electioneer in this referendum if question two were actually in effect at this moment. Because NMAX is owned by the city of Algary, uh, Calgary, Alberta. So that's a foreign government under question two. So a lot of the spending would go away. I think the other piece of question two that's really important to mention here is that it's supported by campaign finance reform groups, uh, specifically because it it takes a big bite out of uh, the corporation spending that was unleashed by Citizens United. Um, and we've seen efforts that go even further than question two do in other states like Minnesota, where they act don't not, not only are they going after government-owned corporations or entities, but just entities that are owned by foreign nationals, which, you know, the, there's a lot of dispute over that. That's in litigation right now. And I suspect that question two, if it were to come to pass, may also encounter some litigation about its constitutionality. So, Will, there, there is an active campaign in favor of question two. Is there also an active campaign against it? No one has filed, um, you know, significant spending in opposition to it. Um, there does not appear to be an active campaign on the ground. You know, that said, we saw opposition certainly during the legislative process. Um, obviously, the version that came before the legislature, which was the Citizens Initiative this year, um, was vetoed by the governor, as was the previous version in So wait a minute. Wait a minute. It was passed legislatively, and then what happened? And then the governor vetoed it because all citizen referendums in Maine, when after the signatures are submitted and the secretary approves them, they first go to the legislature and the legislature considers them whether they want to pass it into law as written or whether they want to send it to the voters to decide. You know, the legislature can't reject outright, but they can just not act on it or vote it down and then it goes to the voters. Um, This citizens initiative had a I would say relatively unique effort to pass it through the legislature. I think it was the first like strong effort since 2004 to make, to do this. It got most of the way there, you know, it passed both chambers and then it went to the governor and the governor vetoed it. And so because the legislature was not able to override that veto, it is going to the voters as most citizens initiatives do. It was bipartisan in the legislature, was it? There, there was bipartisan support in the legislature. 
again, like, you know, like the previous um, question we discussed, there were more Democrats than Republicans who voted for it. But, you know, there were some some notable champions on both sides, including, you know, the minority leader in the House, Billy Bob Falkenham, voted for it. Um, and, you know, I think it was very close to that two thirds threshold that it would have needed to overcome a veto, but it wasn't quite there. Do we know why the governor vetoed it, Steve? She must have written a veto letter. What did she say? Yeah, she had a she had a couple of um, issues with it. She the first and foremost is that she questions the constitutionality of it, which is the constitutional question is around political speech and who has a right to it. And and the governor essentially made the case that these entities have the same, even if they're owned by a foreign government, they have the same right to political speech as you know domestic domestically um, governed companies in in the country. She almost made, it's almost like a a pro-Citizens United argument that these folks have, these companies have the same rights to defend themselves in a referendum campaign as anybody else. The other argument she made, and prominently in the most recent veto, because there was actually two attempts to get this over the finish line. One was in 2021. That failed. She vetoed that one as well. But this time, the she was she raised concerns about this provision that actually affects what we do, not necessarily main public radio because we're not a commercial broadcaster. But for entity for the press, there's a due diligence provision which is effectively charges the press with developing some sort of controls to make sure that advertising purchased on their platforms, whether it's newspapers or websites their air is not um, purchased by one of these entities that would be precluded from spending an election year and a referendum campaign. And press associations have voiced some strong opposition to this because they believe that this is an infringement on their, uh, on the first amendment effectively, and that it's effectively deputizing the press to do a government function to make sure that this, that these folks are not, you know, purchasing ads, um, in the, what their argument is, is that they don't have the resources to do that. And not only that, it's just, it's in violation of, const, of the constitution. I did a little bit of reporting after the fact is to see like what the ethics commission says about this, because the ethics commission would be charged with, it, it's the campaign finance watchdog. And so they would, um, the commission would effectively be in charge of in enforcing this press provision. And what I've heard is that from Jonathan Wayne, the director of the Ethics Commission, is that there would be likely be some changes in if this were to pass that, you know, that the and that the Ethics Commission would not necessarily would not be interested in policing press organizations. They their focus would be on policing uh the ballot the campaigns. Yeah. The contributors. Yeah. That's yeah. who their focus would be on and not um, you know, not seeing whether the press actually has these protocols in place and the, the protocols are ill-defined, you know what I mean? So that I can understand why the press organizations are sort of wary of this because they don't know what it means. But at the same time, there's going to be some rulemaking if this passes and the Ethics Commission is not interested in keeping tabs on the press. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Director for the League of Women Voters of Maine, and Steve Missler, Maine Public's Chief Politics and Government Correspondent. Our program today is titled, Yikes, Eight Ballot Questions. 
This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So I think we kind of covered questions one through three, and they're kind of interrelated somehow or other in the first half of the show. Let's go to the the final um, citizen initiative question, question four, and then we'll cover the constitutional amendments in the second half. So question four is, do you want to require vehicle manufacturers to standardize onboard diagnostic systems and provide remote access to those systems and mechanical data to owners and independent repair facilities, the so-called Right to Repair Act? Is there a campaign for this one? Is there a campaign against it? What would it do? Who brought it forward? Um, you want to go first, Steve? So there is a campaign, and th- this initiative was brought by um, the independent independents auto repair shops, your VIP, um, your VIP parts, your, um, and even some of the local ones you have, your, your local repairman might be involved in this the, the part of this coalition. And it's almost identical to a law that was passed in Massachusetts and, and then updated to include some new developments in the auto manufacturing industry. I'll get to that in just a second. And then of course, the opponents of this are the auto manufacturers themselves who just they, they reject this attempt to allow what it would essentially do if it passes would allow consumers to access certain parts and diagnostic data in in their cars so they can fix the car themselves right to repair right now technically our consumer laws already have a right to fix products that we own but the problem is is that over time especially in the auto manufacturing industry they've become the car cars have become more electronic and a lot of the software that's in the cars is proprietary or is uh, basically bought and produced by the manufacturers themselves and what they've done is sort of cl- closed off access to certain information about your vehicle and the argument for for proponents of question 4 is that the whole reasoning for doing that is because the manufacturers want to plow customers into their own franchise dealer service networks and keep them there. So they would really only have one choice to get their car fixed. It would be the place where they bought it. The um, The other side, the manufacturers argue, no, this this is proprietary information. Uh, we're not a lot. We, we don't have to give it to you. Uh, also, there are safety concerns with giving this information to either consumers or third party or independent repair shops. Um, there's also because of because cars are parts some cars anyway are basically smartphones on wheels now. There's hacking concerns that have been expressed too that you know outside people can get into your car's diagnostics and you know your car these days has all kinds of features that would cause you some concern if your car was hacked. Right? There's some cars that have facial recognition recognition in them. They're self driving technologies that sort of thing. So. I don't know if I did a great job explaining what the arguments are, but that's it in a nutshell. You want to comment, Will? Just to say that I think you did do a great job because it is it is a pretty complex issue and it gets linked into a lot of other things. There's other sorts of right to repair movements on different sorts of issues, such as electronics um, in the U.S. and around the world. So I think it's really it's really helpful to hear how where the specific scope of this one is aimed. And I, I've heard that when I first read about this a few years ago, it had to do with farm equipment and yep. the right to repair there. Have other states around the country, do you know, Will, it swept in farm equipment or other right to repair aspects into their laws? 
I'm not as versed on on that, but right. um, I've certainly heard the coverage of it. Yeah, yeah. I think Colorado actually just passed a law, uh, a right to repair law specific to farm uh, farm equipment. New York State has also passed a law that's more sweeping. It in, it includes electronics. Um, you know, I think one of the um, issues is that you know if you buy a pair a pair of earbuds from Apple and one of them stops working, do you feel like you might be able to open that thing up and fix it? You know, they're not. It's almost as if they're designed to not be opened up by the the owner. Because you, you would just effectively destroy it, and so the, the that's the other argument is that it's more sustainable, right? Uh, to go to, to have a right to repair law because then the manufacturers would make these things so you could fix them themselves instead of just tossing them out. So that's that's the that's a broader movement. There's actually a bill that's more sweeping in the legislature that got carried over that we'll see next year. Uh, Senator Mike Tipping has sponsored it. That's more that would include electronics, but this one question four is specific only to uh, automobiles. Question five is the first of the constitutional amendments, and it reads, do you favor amending the Constitution of Maine to change the time period for judicial review of the validity of written petitions from within 100 days of the date of filing to within 100 business days of the date of filing of a written petition in the office of the Secretary of State, with an exception for petitions filed within 30 calendar days before or after a general election. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. What is this really trying to do, Will? In short, this is really just about giving the Secretary of State's office more time to process the petitions that are turned in um, for things like the first four questions we've discussed today. Um, The Constitution is pretty stringent, pretty strict on when they have to process these. You know, it says 100 days period. And so this is changing that, as you said, to 100 business days with these blackout periods before and after a general election. Because that is typically quite a busy time in their office. Yeah. Yes. And you end up with this interesting thing where campaigns are often incentivized to turn in their petitions right before an election because their signatures are valid for a year. So if they collect all their signatures on uh, election day on, you know, the previous November, oftentimes the best time for them to turn them in so the signatures don't expire is just under a year later. And that kind of, it hits the secretary's office at the worst time for all the rest of the work they have to do. So Steve, this question was brought forward by the secretary of state and, you know, by tradition, the government doesn't actually campaign for these, right? Go ahead, explain there's no campaign, yeah. right? No, there's no campaign. I, I, I mean, I, I know that the state election, the Secretary of State's office would be thrilled if this passes, and that's because last year was a great example of what Will was talking about. There was all the citizen initiatives that we are dealing with right now. A lot of the signature, the, the petitions to put these things on the ballot came in at the same time that the state was trying to administer a pretty big election, the 2022 midterms. So, and I think the deputy secretary of state, Julie Flynn said that her office, her and her staff worked 35 straight days because everything that they needed to do was in like within this, this very small time frame, within a month or so. And the, this question five would effectively alleviate that problem. And it would also give them more time to verify and validate that the petitions that are used to uh, basically authorize these citizen initiatives are valid. And there's not duplicates, forgeries, 
you name it. And, you know, as you know, those, these things, those things do happen and that's why they actually have to check them. So it can't matter. It sure can matter. Yeah. That's right. It can matter whether or not it gets on the ballot for sure. I I think one interesting thing that people don't realize is that if the secretary's office isn't able, like simply can't get through it, the default is it goes to the ballot. And so this is sort of back helping to backstop against that risk of just not being, you know, a forged petition essentially making it to the ballot. Right. So the secretary of state supports it. No one opposes it. Um, That's kind of where it is, right? Yeah, I'm not aware of any opposition to it. Okay, let's go on to question six then. This is, do you favor amending the Constitution of Maine to require that all of the provisions of the Constitution be included in the official printed copies of the Constitution prepared by the Secretary of State? Um, I know we could spend a lot of time on this one. Unfortunately, I don't think we have a lot of time. But in a nutshell, where did this come from, Will? So this has come sort of in the... In the broader range of, you know, the discussion of tribal issues that we have seen over the past several years. Um, and in short, this comes out of the fact that in the printed versions of the main constitution, there are sections um, dealing with treaty obligations. Um, some of these date to back before, um, before Maine was a state, but just in general, you know, there are sections of the constitution that are not um, currently printed, but are still considered part of the constitution, many of which deal with um, tribal issues. And so this is a proposal that has come forth um, largely through the tribes. Uh, The speaker has been, you know, really carrying this and leading it. Um, And it would be a sort of, you know, acknowledgement and recognition of this, you know, part of history that folks feel like is being erased by, um, by these sections not being printed in the Constitution. So the tribes are the main proponents. Um, the governor has opposed it, though, right, Steve? Yeah, the governor opposed it when it was a le- legislative initiative um, and essentially just saying that, you know, these treaty obligations that will refer to are already in, in effect um, and that there's just no need to print these parts of the Constitution, which were essentially it's not just the treaty obligations, but a couple other sections that were basically main voters. I think it was in 19, 18, 1875 actually voted to omit these parts of the constitution, main constitution. It, it was couched then as sort of a cleanup of the constitution to make it a little more uh, easy to read. But of course, from the tribe's perspective, they feel like it's um, it kind of hiding the state's obligations to them. Those obligations, as Will said, are in full force of, you know, of the law, but um, they're not seen. The law, that part of the law is not seen, at least as it relates to the Constitution. And some of the other hidden ink, invisible ink provisions have to do with Maine becoming a state from Massachusetts and what the obligations were on day one, which, of course, those are long past. But those sections would have to be printed along with the ones that the tribes want, right? That's right. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because I think we had somebody describe those that document as it was because effectively it was the cleaving off of Maine from Massachusetts and the document actually read like a divorce right. settlement or something like that. You know what I mean? So that's the argument that they made at the time was why these things should be buried and not in view because they're just, you know, they're, it's almost like a legal settlement more than um, 
than a constitutional document. Right, right. But that is certainly going to make our printed constitution a bit longer if it passes. Um, but that's right. You know, the, the as you say, well, the tribes are passionately um, supportive. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Director for the League of Women Voters of Maine, and Steve Missler, Maine Public's Chief Politics and Government Correspondent. We're talking about the eight, count them, eight ballot questions facing voters this November. This program was pre-recorded on October 16th. No listener calls are being taken. We're up to question seven, which is a constitutional amendment. Do you favor amending the Constitution of Maine to remove a provision requiring a circulator of a citizen's initiative or people's veto petition to be a resident of Maine and a registered voter in Maine requirements that have been ruled unconstitutional in federal court. I think, Will, that pretty much explains it, but do you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. I'll just add that, um, you know, I think unlike a lot of ballot questions, you actually get pretty close to the full story here, which is <laughs> that this is on the ballot because the printed constitutional provision is has been found unconstitutional by a federal court, so it is no longer in effect. Now, I think with this, and as we'll discuss with the next question, question eight, the piece that voters get confused on is that this means that Voting for this does not change anything in how the law is, how the Constitution, how the law is administered. Once it's found federally unconstitutional, a provision is a provision in the main Constitution just can't be enforced. So what this does is this really is sort of housekeeping. This is um, taking out this provision where there used to be these restrictions on who could collect signatures in Maine for citizens initiatives, people's vetoes. And I think it was in 2021, somewhere in the 2020, 2021 um, range, um, there was a campaign that did sue the state over this um, provision, arguing it was unconstitutional and a federal court agreed. So this is just updating the uh, state constitution to reflect that. So this is another one that was actually brought forward by the Secretary of State, right, Steve? Yeah, it's interesting. No, I mean, the Secretary of State actually fought that federal ruling. They they did not agree with it because, you know, the main constitution, and as Will pointed out, the U.S. Constitution are in conflict on this. The main constitution specifically says that non-residents can't circulate these ballot petitions, Well, whereas the, uh, the federal court has determined that's in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Secretary of State Shanna Bellows was fine with as it was written in the uh, main constitution and actually argued unsuccessfully to keep it there but the federal judge decided that um it's in violation of the of the US constitution which is why we are here now i think this again as will just mentioned is purely uh, almost a, almost a cleanup administrative change um although i think some people some voters may be put off by the idea of doing this allowing out of staters um, even though they can already uh, circulate these petitions. No, I'm glad you clarified that because the Secretary of State was happy when it was just main people that could circulate the petitions and fought for that. But this is now just let's make the Constitution reflect what is actually enforceable. And so it's kind of a cleanup measure. And there's no campaign on either side, I take it. No, there isn't. I think it's just, you know, it's, it, yeah, there's none that I'm aware of. I don't think there's been a, a dime of spending on it. Okay. 
And then that brings us um, to question eight. Do you favor amending the Constitution of Maine to remove a provision prohibiting a person under guardianship for reasons of mental illness from voting for governors, senators, representatives, which the United States District Court for the District of Maine found violates the United States Constitution and federal law? So another case in which the Maine State Constitution was in conflict with the federal Constitution and the U.S. Constitution wins. Go ahead, Will. Sure. So this one, this one actually has quite a long history. Um, the original provision in the Maine Constitution until the 1960s prohibited voters under um, under guardianship for mental illness and paupers, which is an interesting term, from being able to vote for these offices. You know that part was amended then, but voters who are under guardianship for reasons of mental illness. Um, were still prohibited up through um, 2001, and there had actually been two attempts in 1997 and 2000 to remove this provision. Um, Voters had voted that down twice, and then there was a lawsuit brought um, by disability advocates um, to, to federal court arguing that this was unconstitutional. The federal court agreed in 2003, I believe, and so since then, the broad brush of guardianship for mental illness has not been a disqualifier for someone being able to vote for these offices. Now, here we are about 20 years later, and we are um, voting to, similar to question seven, whether to take something out of the main constitution that is no longer in force. And again, I think it is important to emphasize that this does not change anyone's voting rights, um, whether or not this passes. Go ahead, Steve. No, I think Will hit it. I mean, that's the, it's the most important piece here is that this change that he talks about where the folks under guardianship are allowed to vote, that's codified in the election statute. But the problem is, is that the Constitution hasn't caught up with that. And so this, in effect, would be making that change in the Constitution where it already exists. And so there's, as he says, there's no change in, in, in voting rights. The, the people who would be affected by this are already affected um, and they already have the right to vote where, you know, whatever happens with this, uh, it will not change that. It, it just, the, if voters disapprove of it, the constitution will just still, it will still read it the way it does right now, which is in conflict with the way the law is actually, uh, enforced. Who determines guardianship in Maine? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Some judge somewhere, right? Yeah, this mm-hmm. must have to go it is it is something that's dealt with in court and i should note that you know guardianships for mental illness can have different provisions there can be specific guardianships where voting is not part of you know where they can be excluded for voting on a specific basis but the constitution as written broadly excludes that entire group so people who are so disabled in the estimation of a judge might have their voting rights limited Sure. And yes. And I know that there are also, this is something that disability, like disability advocates work on is, you know, if that's something that someone in that situation wants those voting rights, that's something that can be adjusted in such a guardianship provision. Okay. That's good to know. So is there a campaign on this one? Uh, Disability rights you mentioned? Mm -hmm. I would say that there is a informational campaign more than anything. Um, you know, there are, there's not 
real spending on this. There are organizations that have endorsed it. I should say on our advocacy side, uh, the League of Women Voters of Maine has endorsed Question 8. And then also Disability Rights Maine has has something in the actual voter guide that the Secretary of State's office distributes um, and makes available to the public in support of it. There was a letter this morning from the Maine chapter of the National Association of Social Workers in support of it. But this is just, I think the spirit is more the education than anything on this because, you know, I think I think the nightmare scenario is someone sees a headline like this fails and assumes that they have lost voting rights. So education really is the highest priority with question eight. That's good. You want to add anything to that, Steve? No, I think we'll hit it. I think you got oh, it. Okay. So what are we looking at for turnout? Is I mean, a few months ago, you reported, Steve, that people didn't really know what these questions were about. I think there has been some information coming out. You're reporting and others. Are people coming up to speed? Are they getting ready to vote? Well, it's interesting. There was a poll that came out, I think it was in August, that suggested that people didn't know a lot about these questions. Uh, the one they knew the most about was question three, which, is, which, of course, is the utility takeover proposal. But it was interest was high, and that suggests that even though they didn't know what these these questions are about that interest is high that they'll that they'll turn out and i think that they will especially i think question 3 will be a motivator for a lot of voters um whether they support it or or they're fearful of it and so you know i think turnout i mean maine always does great turnout um and even in off years like this one but when you have eight questions on the ballot i think that in and of itself may be a draw for some voters. So we'll have to see. We don't have a good sense of where we are right now because absentee, early absentee voting just started. But I would not be surprised if turnout is relatively high, at least for an off year. Are there exciting municipal elections around the state that might drive a little turnout, Will? Mm-hmm. I, a lot of the major municipalities in Maine do have elections this year. They do have contested elections. Um Portland, of course, is electing its mayor and a few city councilors. Um, there's pretty robust races happening in Lewiston and Auburn. Bangor is electing uh, city councilors and has a lot of candidates for that. Um, so is Ellsworth right here in Hancock County. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think those will have sort of it sort of goes both ways, right? Like that may add people who vote on the referendums and then the referendums will likely add a lot of people who will vote on those local elections as well. Well, good. Um, let me give you each a minute to sort of wrap up today and answer any questions that I didn't ask or put any other thoughts out into the conversation. Um, you go first, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's just I think it's an unusual and unique uh, referendum election. I think that the sheer number of questions on the ballot is interesting, that what the ballot questions ask is very interesting. I think, you know, question three is obviously getting the most attention. Um, because it it does something that no state has ever done, which is take over its investor-owned utilities and replace them uh, with with something a lot different. You know, something that's run by elected officials, and I think that in of itself, which has also made it very hard to assess what outcomes may come if question three passes, and that's made that campaign in and of itself very dif- different uh, to cover because. Both sides are making widely competing and disparate claims. And I mean, not even in the same ballpark in some cases. And they're allowed to do that because there's there's so much uncertainty. And I think uncertainty may end up being a ter- be a determining factor in question, the way question three pans out. But 
I mean, I also think question two is really interesting too, just because, you know, it is part of this um, uh, backlash to Citizens United. You know, it, it it's it's unique to Maine in some ways, but th- it is part of a larger movement uh, to do something about what Citizen, Citizens United di- did, which was to unleash uh, this unprecedented wave of corporate election spending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Will, what are your final thoughts this, this afternoon? Just a couple of thoughts. One, I think it's really fascinating how you look at both question one and question two, and they obviously have some sort of policy connection to question three. And I think if you look at question one and question two, and you you ask a voter generally, do you support this? Um, I think they're more likely to come out at yes on that, on both of those, you know, despite their, their different origins. And it's going to be really fascinating to kind of cross compare the numbers. I'm going to be so fascinated to see how the voting public of Maine falls on those. As I think about the questions later on on the ballot, I will be fascinated to see both one, like what are voters making of this? And two, how many of them actually vote on every question? I think, I think being able to see, you know, who is abstaining from how many people are abstaining from a question tells you, you know, is the question easy to understand and has it been widely discussed in the public? So I'll certainly be watching for that as well. Well, plug vote 411 before I wrap us up. Sure. So the league has a um, nonpartisan information guide uh, called vote411.org. And you can go to that and you can put in your address and it'll give you all the information you need to vote. Um, You know, it'll have summaries of these statewide questions with arguments on both sides. And it will also tell you what's on your local ballot, as well as any um, candidates. Um, If they've submitted information, you can get their candidacy in their own words. And then um, Steve, Put in a plug for the political pulse and where online people can look for that. Yeah, so we've done a, a, a breakdown of all eight ballot questions, and you can find all of those. Um, there's there's a written component and there's an audio component. So whatever you prefer, or if you prefer both, you could find all of that at mainpublic.org/pulse. Wonderful. That's our show for today. Thank you so much to our guests this afternoon, Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Director for the League of Women Voters of Maine, and Steve Missler, Maine Public's Chief Politics and Government Correspondent. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. The League website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe Subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.